from the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. Welcome to Tiny House Podcast. I'm Perry. I'm Michelle. And this is Mark Grimes with a sense of deja vu. (laughs) (laughs) Because we tried to start this show before and had some technical difficulties. Um, We're here today with Rachel Guinness, sounds like the beer, she said, who is um, the owner of lilypadhomes.org. Is that right, Lily Pat Holmes? Yep. Is that right? That's okay. Right. Awesome. And she is going to regale us uh, about the nature of uh, rental housing and, and I guess auxiliary housing ADUs. and ADUs, yep. essentially. Uh, Rachel, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's great to hear you with such good sound quality. Yay! Yay. Yay. You can almost hear a doggy. <laughs> is that a doggy? Yeah. Background? <laughs> so, Rachel, why don't you start us out again and tell us uh, how you got into your business? Um, gosh, I got into my business, um, well, um, largely because of life experience, but I have to say it's a culmination of everything I've, um, learned, uh, the career choices I've made, um, but I, um, I'm a residential designer, lead accredited, I have a huge sustainability initiative and a general contractor as well, and, um, but my degree is actually in anthropology, where I studied housing patterns, and so global housing patterns over time. So I have a, a particular awareness of um, of the the housing stock we have in the United States. But it was really um, because of a life event that kind of got me started on this journey, and that was when I became a single parent. I um, wanted to stay in my home in Marin County, and. Um, I was a designer, so on a designer salary, and so it wasn't going to be easy to do and decided to temporarily repurpose the master bedroom in my room, in my home, excuse me, into a lovely little living space. And it was the income from that space that allowed me to stay in my home and keep my daughter in her school um, just down the street from her dad's house. And um, I could have taken a roommate. You can have roommates right now in your home. But I had to ensure our privacy because my daughter was five years old at the time. And I didn't see who I was hurting um, because, you know, I was just temporarily repurposing a bedroom. But I can tell you that that bedroom has served me so well over the past 15 years. And I actually moved into my 230-square-foot apartment myself so that I could start a nonprofit to empower other people to do what I've done. And why did you, you, you said before that the business was a, a for-profit business and then you switched it to uh, uh, non-profit. Why did you do that? Um, I just, I, I knew that there were a lot of hurdles to creating um, second units. Uh, there are generally uh, very high permitting fees and there's a lot of requirements like parking and sprinkler systems. Um, but I really started to understand how many hurdles there were. Um, for really the people, um, the people who want to create an a an uh, accessory dwelling unit, in many cases, want to because they need they need the income, and because they need the income, they might not necessarily have the capital to make the investment to create one. So by creating a, a very simple and inexpensive permitting track for one very particular type of second unit. Um, it allows people access to um, funding if they qualify because they're low income. So it was really making um, 
making creating a second unit accessible to as many people as humanly possible. Um, that's um, junior second units. Um, that's what we're passing ordinances locally um, that make junior second units um, very easily and inexpensively permanent. And what sets this particular type of um, second unit apart is it specifically involves repurposing a spare bedroom or spare bedrooms, but you're generally allowed to only make one second unit. And um, the reason that they're different is because all of the water and energy, all the sewer, all the road use, all the parking, all the infrastructure, everything for that bedroom has already been accounted for in the original permit for your home. And so charging people high fees is like double taxation. And it doesn't make any sense to charge, you know, high connection fees because you're not really asking for any, any connection. I mean, that makes that makes technical, logical and technical sense. Yeah. So are they called junior units in California as opposed to ADUs in Oregon? They're, it's so hard because they, they're being called, we call them flexible housing and I can explain that. But in code, they've been called junior accessory dwelling units or junior second units. And it's actually kind of a cute um, story, the way the name came about, because um, I have a a grandmother um, who was named Jessie, and I also have an, a niece that was that's named Jessie. And I think of these units as um, a, a, a tremendous way to house our parents and our children. Um, I say that we, I, I don't know if you know Marin, but it's an affluent community. And I say we live in a gilded cage because there's no place for our kids to come home. And, um, and you know, it's getting increasingly difficult for our, our seniors to stay in their homes and age in place. So uh, Jesse's room, or J.R. Jr., <laughs> I call these, these are like, it's Jesse's room that I'm creating. And so when I said, well, why can't we call them, you know, junior accessory dwelling units, they're like, there's no J.R. in code, so they just spelled it out, junior. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So, so are you at the level of policy in your interactions, or are you... Um, I don't want to say just another contractor, but someone who is just a, a citizen who's building these things and you happen to interact with the um, regulators. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question. Um, actually, I'm I'm definitely involved in policy. I you know I, I consider myself an educator. I'm educating a whole community about this opportunity that we have, but we actually you know have you know helped to write a model ordinance the original and now have our own that we can hand to anybody so that you can you know create a simple and inexpensive permitting track for this type of second unit in your community so um and we are actually it's been so well received and it's just such a timely proposal this is not actually new we're, we're moving back to a multi-generational housing model that was common in this country before world war ii um, yeah, and it's actually a common housing pattern around the world. It was, it's, it's a very unique housing story, if you will, in the United States. Um, and that is that um, most of our housing stock was developed after World War II. Um, and there were two major assumptions going on at that time. One was that there was endless cheap energy. And two was that the nuclear family was the model for the United States. And, um, you know, what, 50 some years later, um, I, I would say neither of those had turned out to be the case if they ever were. And, um, 
And so the question becomes how to redevelop existing homes to move back towards a multi-generational housing model to house a changing society, our society. The traditional family makes up less than 23% of our of our society today with a steady rise of um, single parent families, couples without kids, empty nesters, retirees, young professionals, and individuals of all ages. So um, I said I would explain the word flexible, and then I swear I'm going to get back to your question. (laughs) Um, Flexible is because the interior door to the main living space remains in place. It can be doubled up like you see in adjoining hotel suites, and so it can be mutually secured. And so you create a completely private, you know, independent unit with an exterior entrance and what's considered a wet bar in code. It's also called an efficiency kitchen, and it's basically the kitchen that exists across half of Paris. And um, anyway, so I have been instituting um, this model in code, and it's been catching on so successfully. But with that said, it's also taking way too long. We needed all this housing like 10 years ago. And so it's we've moved it right up um, to the state level, and we're seeing if we can pass, um, you know, pass it into law and create a new statute to allow to make it. You are allowed to do this uh, by right if you're a homeowner. So, so, so with the advent of Airbnb, I'm just thinking through the economics here. Just, sure. And I'm not good with math, right? So, Mark, help me out. I may fuck this up. Okay. I'll get to you later. Okay. It, thinking about Airbnb and the need for people to make money, which I, I agree with you that people are, are trying to do these kind of things to make money. Yeah. It seems like, to me, the airbnb your whatever it happens to be out, as opposed to having someone staying there renting, paying by the month, is much more economically beneficial to have it as an airbnb yeah um i would say that depends on how you look at it um i get the airbnb airbnb question all the time and um and i have to say like airbnb is a, is a situation is a market it's a perfect example it's a market that's been created and it just went out and did it and now all the regulatory bodies are trying to figure out how to control it because it's turning our communities in some cases like you know marin is a very desirable place to be and so we have a massive problem out on the coastal areas like western marin i don't know if you've ever been here but it's incredibly gorgeous out there the people are buying up homes and then airbnb being them and so there's actually nobody to like run the, the grocery store. <laughs> I mean, like the, the communities oh, themselves yeah. can't function because, you know, there's lots of people who have like their second, third, fourth home out there wow. and they're airbnb it. So it kind of speaks to the regulatory piece. But um, so to answer your question, Airbnb, like there are people who absolutely love Airbnb. It's, it's the way they socialize. They bring the world to them. Maybe they can't afford to go to Paris. And, um, and that's it. I mean, it is work to run and to run Airbnb. So you either do it because you love it. And so you'll do it regardless, or you do it because, because it is the way, the only way um, that you can earn money based on additional space that you have in your home. By creating a, a simple and inexpensive permitting track for privatizing bedrooms, you have the opportunity to have a long-term renter, um, and it's you know 
it's not a job. It's a, you know, it's basically a year lease kind of thing. And also your home is your greatest and most personal investment. I mean, I can tell you, I would rather shoot myself than having random strangers coming in and out of my house and me having to clean up after them. So, um, I mean, I, I think that, um, rules are going to be put in place that are, are going to level the playing field because you're right. Um, people optimize their space in their homes by renting it out when they don't want to use it. But when the holidays come and their family comes over, then they're like, I want to have my space. But if you can privatize, you know, and create housing for somebody, it's much better wear and tear on your most valuable investment, you know, and it's, it's not, there's, it's a lot of work to manage, uh, you know, a, a a vacation rental business. Well, and so, it, it's yeah. interesting because the, the 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 dynamic that I think you're pointing out is the difference between um, taking something that you bought as as you as an as a private expression of your own desire to live and turning it into a commercial thing versus right. having someone move into the thing that you purchased to live privately um, that they can live as a resident as well as opposed to this itinerant person. Yeah, you've got it. I, I mean, I, I, I have handpicked my neighbors. I have created the most divine community in my own home. I mean, in my, my, all my neighbors, you know, in the, in, in the neighborhood, like have appreciated the, the people that I've had living here. So, and like I said, I mean, you, you can have all the roommates you want right now. Um, so this really just, um, privatizes it and it's people do Airbnb because they do not want a full-time roommate. Um, Anyway, so they want to optimize the, 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 the time that they have somebody in their home. Just to, to clarify the, de- the definite or define the word you're using, when you say privatize, you don't mean privatizing like someone privatizes a company. You're talking about making a space private, right? That is correct, okay. yes. I'm talking about making a, a completely independent unit. So you, you don't have a roommate, you have a neighbor. The, the, the other thing that we've seen here that's happened in Portland, getting back to your point about governments and local municipalities trying to figure all this out, one of the things that's happened in Portland is when you build a second unit, whether it's an ADU or whatnot, even if it's for a relative, what they've done over the last year, and they've really encouraged people to do that, but now they're getting hit, hit with new tax bills, and they're taxing the entire house as a new house. Really? So we're seeing tax bills that are going up by sometimes a factor of 5x. Wow. Yeah. Well, so, you know what? I can actually speak to that because I was so thrilled to come to the um, Build Small, Live Large conference. I was uh, I spoke on the policy panel, and um, the mayor came uh, like the last you know, at the end of the day yeah. and basically said that he was going, you know, that basically something was out of sync and he was going to address the issue. Apparently he has a very good relationship with the county and that they were going to figure that one out because it was just, you know, kind of a fluke loophole that somebody, you know, jumped on and that they were going to correct that. Um, but I mean, you know, there, there are some, uh, tax, um, you know, there are some reasonable, uh, tax issue or what's the word I'm looking for? Implication. Um, yeah. What's that? Implication. Implication. Yes. Thank you so much. Implications around creating a second unit. But I'm just like, uh, you guys know in Portland, it's ADUs are, they're, they're much less about what I'm um, talking about. Um, in fact, when I was kind of talking to people about it, I was surprised to they were like, well, you know, why do you need to do that? I mean, can anyone just do that right now? I feel like in Portland, it's like, it's a go-getter do-it-yourself, you know, um, younger movement to create these wonderful ADUs. The tour was, you know, just off the charts. But if you create, uh, you know, a 
a home, I'm going to talk about Marin right now, but I can only imagine it's the same in Portland. If you create a home of say 700 or, you know, square feet, and maybe there's a pretty, there's a, there's definitely a significant price point on that. It's about double here what it is there, but you will instantly recognize the value of that property in, in the, in the value of, of your property, um, you know, so it will reflect that investment that you made mm-hmm. and you have an, an, the opportunity for an endless stream of income. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's reasonable that there would be tax implications uh, for that. I just think what's so neat with junior second units, um, the price point on creating a junior second unit, repurposing spare bedrooms in your home, um, is that the price point is incredibly low. Um, it's not uncommon to have an exterior entrance in a bedroom, number one. Creating a wet bar is basically putting in a bar sink and a series of standard outlets for small kitchen plug-in appliances like an under-counter refrigerator, a to- um, um, toaster oven, a microwave, um, induction cooktop, you get it. And, um, you know, they can cost as little as, say, $5,000, maybe going up to twenty-five on, you know, as a, as a norm, I mean, if you're talking about a second floor bedroom, then obviously there's going to be additional costs. But you um, you have the access you have access to the same you know income, um, whether it's attached or detached. I mean, I would say that if it's detached, you it would you know command a somewhat higher price point. But still, um, you can accomplish much the same um, income with simply repurposing spare bedrooms. Yeah, when we met, when you came to, uh, when we came, when you came into town for the summit, and, and you and I sat down, um, I was really impressed not only with your your sort of drive and your passion, but also your progress. And it, it's kind of funny, just tiny houses in general, but your your concept specifically, like, oh well, of course, junior units make sense. But the ironic thing is, I'd never really heard of this really. Um, as a direction or as an ADU option until you and I sat down and talked about it. I mean, it's yeah. so funny. You kind of slap yourself on the forehead and say, why haven't we done this sooner? It just makes a tremendous yeah. amount of sense. So did you get that same um, reaction from the summit attendees, kind of that, you know, schmack to the forehead? Well, of course, let's just utilize the large houses we have rather than building foundations and doing really complicated builds in our backyards. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not not to take anything away from them, but it's it is like kind of a no brainer. I mean, I think that's why it's um, catching on so quickly and has a lot of popular support. Um, little known fact: over half the homes, I'm sure in Portland too, are occupied by only one or two people. In most cases, it's a couple sleeping in only one bedroom. I mean, this is the you know this is what's going on across the country, um, and just given the demographics that we have and also young people um, because of um, for a multitude of reasons high housing costs um, paying back um, tuition um, student loans uh, they are renting um, they're, they're renting their homes for much longer than they have in the past so again it's like by by creating a flexible unit you can house the nuclear family or you can shut those two doors and have a small home and a medium-sized home. So basically, our existing housing stock can house all facets of our uh, changing society. So what do you what do you define as the nuclear family? I, I presume that many of our listeners are younger than, or some of our listeners are younger than I am, and so they don't 
know what that means? Sure. It's a, it's a mom, dad, and a couple kids. So basically they would take up a, a three bedroom home where again, most of our, over half of our homes are occupied by only one or two people. And in most cases, it's a couple sleeping in only one bedroom, leaving the majority of bedrooms, even in an average three bedroom home, empty or underutilized. And, and the and the you're saying that this is a relatively new phenomenon as an anthropologist before we were living multiple generations in a house like they do in the Philippines, for example. So before World War II, um, multi generational housing, yes, having more than one generation in a home um, was the norm. And it, it this is a movement that's going on. It is becoming more and more the norm every day as um, you know we are facing the silver tsunami. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever heard that term, yeah. but um, oh, baby boomers. Why, why don't you go ahead and say what that is, so that those who don't oh, know will know. It's a. It's basically the baby boomers moving into retirement, <clears throat> and um, and. Um, how are they going to stay in their homes and age in place? Excuse me, one sec. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so how are they going to stay in their homes and age in place? And how is this new generation going to go about, you know, purchasing homes? And, you know, you, you know how nonprofits are. We have lofty dreams. And I actually, I'm actually, um, we're looking to create a, a lending structure that would actually allow people to purchase a home based on, the rental income from either one of those units, meaning they could want to live in the 500 square foot apartment and qualify for a mortgage based on renting out the rest of the home. Um, so it's kind of a wild concept, but in my opinion, um, rental income in some of our more popular communities is more stable than, than employment income. So yeah, I mean, I don't know if, I mean, actually you guys have a housing emergency going on there. Um, that's going on in many places around the country. Yeah, we've so. got we've got me- mega massive apartment buildings being built all over the city right now. Yep. Yeah. What's so neat about junior second units is um, they're the low-hanging fruit in the housing equation because they're a non-traditional type of housing, because they're small, and hopefully because an abundance of them could be created pretty quickly and inexpensively. Um, they offer the lowest price point. I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty sweet. So, yeah. oh, and one other thing, because it's you go through an actual permitting process, you know, and uh, I can give you an example. Like in Marin, it costs somewhere between fifteen and thirty-two thousand dollars in permitting connection fees alone to create a second unit. Junior second units used to be just one more type of regular second unit. Um, so. You also had to put in parking spaces, and you also had to put in sprinklers. Now, in one community, Novato, where the ordinance passed first, um, it was actually $32,000. Um, $19,000 of that thirty-two was was connection fees for water and sewer. Meanwhile, the only thing you're doing is putting a bar sink in a bedroom, which you're allowed to do right now with no connection fees. Wow. It's only because you call it affordable housing that all of a sudden they slap on $32,000 in fees. <laughs> anyway, um, so so now in Novato to create a junior second unit because we passed the ordinance, it will cost you, um, well, $447 for the... Um, for the planning permit, and then the building permit is a small percentage, like one percent of the cost of development, which, as I mentioned, is somewhere between maybe five and twenty-five thousand dollars. So you're talking about five hundred dollars as opposed to thirty-two thousand, <laughs> and uh, and I just slap on ten thousand dollars for <clears throat> parking for creating parking and sprinklers. So fifty-two thousand dollars or 
500. I mean, wow. you know. What are the sprinklers for? Um, it's actually under California uh, fire code. Oh. If you it's if you create a second unit, it, if you use those words, then you are supposed to put um, sprinklers in that second unit. And in some communities, they're saying because they people used to deter people from creating second units. Um, you also have to put sprinklers throughout the rest of the house. Wow. So. It's to water the pot plants. So if you were here right now, I'd actually hand you a pepper smash, but uh, because you're not, but because you're not, you can go get some. Let's take a break here. Let you get some water or something. Um, but but I wanted to. I, I I also wanted to circle back and and tell us about your your day to day operation. So. Um, so you get up in the morning. Do you meet with your mayor? Are you, are you traveling a lot? How does how does your business manifest itself on a daily basis? And and what are the types of initiatives? And what what other cities have you have you met with or talked with besides Portland? Yeah, Michelle. Actually, it gets back to um, I, I think it was Perry's question, um, which I didn't completely answer. That you know, what's the brass tax of Lilypad? And I go and um, speak to groups all the time. And I'm also I go to all the planning commission meetings and all the council meetings or supervisor meetings when they're discussing passing this code. And there's lots and lots of you know um, housing workshops that are going on in the Bay Area that I also go and speak to. So sending out information to people, um, meeting with people in Sacramento, you know, to address it at the state level. Um, but what actually um, LilyPed does is, well, we educate the public. So we're teaching classes um, when, again, we'll talk in, you know, any public forum that we're invited to. Um, we're teaching um, at local classes at the high schools as well as the um, community colleges here. And then we do feasibility reports. So if people are thinking about creating a second unit, we go out and um, and we look at the property and we tell them all of the options they do or do not have to create a second unit and which one we think is the most, um, you know, that makes the best use of their of their of their funds and, you know, is offers the the best return on their investment. Um, and then if people need it, we also hand hold their hands through the process. So we're not actually working under my contractor's license. We refer them to architects and we refer them um, to contractors. And we even help them go through the um, the process of finding somebody to stay in that place. Because we're, we're trying to, um, we're like champions, if you will, helping people overcome the barriers to creating these. And so imagine there's a, you know, little old lady in a 3,000 square foot house, you know, she's starting to feel a little bit more isolated and, you know, but this is just so foreign to her that, you know, how would she ever, um, a lot of people here are, um, um, house rich, cash poor. So, um, so we would help her find the funding that she needed. Then we would help her, um, find the contractor, the architect, and then go through uh, the process of finding a person to live in the space. And one of the um, programs that we're working on creating, we call it the Vital Worker Campaign, because I feel like our biggest obstacles, um, I actually said this in Portland, is time, number one, because we need all this housing yesterday, but fear. And so to take the fear out of the process, we want to like feature vital workers in our community, like you know, teachers, uh, firefighters, uh, first responders, um, caregivers, and people, you know, so, you know, Betty, who owns a 3,000 square foot house would be like, oh, you know, 
you know, Bob or Beth or whatever, I would have, you know, they could look at their face, they can look at their story and they would be like, oh, I would create a unit to house that person. Like that would be wonderful. So just taking the fear out of the entire thing. Interesting. Yeah. So um, I, th- I think this model that you're actually talking about, is that it actually uh, at competition for apartment complexes or property to managers? Have you gotten any any pushback? Is there any organized pushback against this idea? Like awesome, super question. Um, actually, uh, so far, we have overwhelming support. And speaking specifically to your issue of, um, of multifamily property um, managers and owners, um, they're terrified because the demand for housing is so crazy and the, the cost of, um, of housing is going through the roof that they're terrified that um, um, price controls, uh, what is it called? Uh, um, price price controls. fixing. Price, yeah. yeah, rent controls. Yeah. Yeah, rent control, that. thank you. They're, uh, they're terrified that rent control is com- going to come into play. And, and wow. building affordable housing um, doesn't happen easily or cheaply, I can tell you. Meanwhile, I'm like the only woman standing, if you will, that offers an abundant, inexpensive opportunity to create housing and possibly, possibly um, start to um, help stabilize the rental market. And what I love about junior second units is that they not only create more affordable rental housing, they make owning a home in the community more affordable. Yeah. So, so it's so the is your organization funded through the um, the the house rich nature of people's property, where you you assist them with the financing, you arrange the team that's going to do the build, you arrange for the person that will end up living there potentially, and then you take a percentage of the funding or something like that. No, it doesn't work work quite like that. I mean, hopefully, it will be a public service. Ultimately, we just started reaching out for our first round of funding, and we got a generous grant from the Marine Community Foundation. They manage the Buck Fund, um, and it's you know it's a very well respected um, foundation here in the community. And so, just having their endorsement is huge, mm-hmm. and we are definitely in the process of looking for further funding. Um, but it's basically a flat fee to um, to hold hands, and the homeowner actually they they contract directly with the architect and the contractor and everything we are literally um just being paid you know i, I think a relatively a, a very reasonable fee to uh to hold hands yeah uh hold hands means broke you're basically brokering the relationships i'm basically walking them through helping them know how to you know giving them a a, a, a collection of referrals so um and, you know, so they have to do the interviews, but then we'll, you know, compare apples to apples and right. all of that and help them make a decision, just really kind of coaching them, if right. you will, through the process. Right. So it sounds like you've already uh, overcome some hurdles um, locally and, and started to help others nationally or, or states and, and counties outside of Marin. What is your biggest challenge right now? What do you, what's next? What's your biggest, uh, the next hurdle you have to overcome? Actually, it's... A, Again, a great question. Um, it's sustaining the organization in its first two years. I think after we are able, like the vital worker campaign is actually supposed to move into becoming a marketplace for residential rental housing. Um, and so I think that we, after getting the word out to the community, it is um, um, 
we, we will be able to be a self-funded nonprofit, but it's sustaining ourselves in the first two years. And part of the, the tricky part of that equation is getting the word out to the public, seniors in the community, people in the community, as quickly as possible. Because you can pass code, but if nobody builds them, you know, then it, it, it doesn't really help you. So how do you how do you get the word out? So of course you know we're we're here at tinyhousepodcast.com. You know uh, we love to help we love to help spread the message on really creative you know creative uh, sources of tiny spaces. Um, what else are you doing? Do you have a social media campaign? Um, what else are you doing to help get the word out there? What other groups or what other meetups or how, what is uh, what's your plan? Yeah, we are we are light on social media. Besides having a Facebook page, um, there's not much to that. But it's really um, working with other organizations, um, which there are a great deal of organizations working with seniors in the community. There are a lot of people who are working with people who are economically challenged. So it's really creating partnerships with other organizations. So like when I was talking about um, funding these projects for people of lower income, we have a relationship with the uh, Marin Housing Authority. And what's so wonderful is there, there's basically a housing authority in every county across California, and I'm sure in, in Oregon too. So, um, so it's really creating partnerships um, that is, and you know, working with the media and um, other groups to, to get the word out. What do you think of the tiny house movement? I think it rocks. <laughs> um, I am I'm thrilled to be a part of it, and I just I myself, uh, you know, live in a 230 square foot apart apartment, and I'm giddy happy, and so I I I get it through and through, and. Um, and I just, you know, we still think of big uh, mansions in the United States, and I'm so excited to move away from that model. I can't even tell you how freeing it is to uh, to have reasonable overhead and the ability to do work that I love instead of being part of the grind to, you know, create up to to earn enough money to support a, you know, a, a, a very expensive lifestyle. Yeah, we um, were. There's, um, I just, there was a, it's one of my favorite references to make. I don't know if you guys are Virginia Woolf fans, but, um, but one of the lesser known books that she wrote, um, was actually created from a talk that she gave for, I think it was Cambridge. Um, they asked her to give a talk about women and fiction. And she, um, she sat down by a river one day and she was like, women in fiction, like, gosh, you know, you could go anywhere with that, um, especially if you're a fiction writer. And, um, and what she ended up doing was writing the, the treatise on affordable housing, if you will. And what she said was for women to have the ability to write fiction, all they need is a small stipend and a room of one's own. And that's the name of the piece, a room of one's own. And I mean, I'm living that model by, you know, you we want to unleash people's creativity. We want people to do work that they love and for people to have the freedom to do that. They need to be able to live a reasonable lifestyle because the work that they're doing might create great social change, but might not earn like an, uh, you know, an income that allows them to live in a McMansion. Here, here, sister. There are a lot of people out there who are looking for... Why do you laugh? I'm getting all hippy-dippy. There are a lot of people out there who would love to follow their passion and pursue what they believe to be a life mission, but can't because they're living in an American dream home. Yeah. 
And uh, we will have a link to the uh, digital publication, A Room of One's Own, on our show notes. Great. Yes. So be sure to check out tinyhousepodcast.com. So, um, so aside from the zoning issues and, and your day-to-day life, how has living in your tiny space really affected your relationships, your relationship with your, your daughter, your relationship with your neighbors, the relationship with yourself? Um, I, I, one of my favorite parts of the tiny house movement is how it encourages simplicity and downsizing and, and sort of minimizing one's footprint, not just from an environmental perspective, but really from an emotional energy perspective. Can you talk about the changes, your personal changes, the changes in the relationships in your own life? Sure. Um, I, I agree with you. Well, um, uh, for one thing, um, it, it pushes you out into the community, if you will. I mean, I love my little space and there's all kinds of wonderful tricks to making them well, which if you're, you know, if you enjoy planning space, it's, it's a party. But, um, <laughs> but also, I mean, I, I live in an efficiency apartment, so getting out and about in the community is wonderful. Um, I've also, like I said before, I've created great community in my home. I have a a young family living in the rest of my house right now. And my daughter has gone off to college, so you become an insane sentimentalist (laughs) when when that happens. So everything their their son says, I just want to bottle. It's adorable. Um, And also, it's so sweet because my daughter... Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that she has two households and a, a room over at her dad's house um, all to herself, but she still loves staying with me, which is so sweet. And if you talk to parents, they say the best, It's uh, there's been articles written about it, like the best, most quality time that you have with your kid is when they're, um, when you're in the car together, because, you know, it's a captive audience. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I feel like I'm camping or something with, with my daughter when she comes, you know, for school breaks. Um, we just have the most enchanting time, if you will, uh, living, uh, you know, temporarily together in, in our little house. And one of the tricks uh, I have is a trundle bed. I don't know if you know about these. It's a cot-sized trundle bed, so it's 30 inches wide. And it becomes either two small beds, or you can put it together and make a perfect queen. So, like I said, I mean, I, I feel like I'm camping. It's it's adorable. And um, I also feel like my daughter, who's in school, like, we're both, like, on working on our degrees <laughs> or, you know, some project and living kind of dorm life, if you will. And so, um I don't know. It's just been, it's been a ton of fun. And I, I am, I'm more like a rabbit. I, I have no desire to have a, a, a massive uh, space just so I can walk by my daughter's room and, you know, remember every day that she's, you know, away at school. I'm like, I love being in my small space and it makes me feel comfortable, confident. I mean, it's, it's, it's security. I don't know how else to say it besides that. And, and like, and it's also when you downsize, it's an awesome exercise to recognize um, what what amongst your possessions somehow really, really have meaning to you and what defines your space as yours. I, I like to think of rooms as canvases. And so, you know, it's your life kind of, you know, plays out on this canvas. And um, anyway, so it just makes for um, a fun story. I also look at interior design from a anthropological point of view and so I love walking into people's spaces and having those spaces tell me a story about who that person is. Cool. So it, it uh, just to clarify and I, for myself because I think I'm a little confused. Yes. You, you, you wanted to keep your house in Marin 
and you're living in an apartment. Is your apartment in your house? Yeah, the apartment that I created to house somebody so that I could stay in my house with my daughter. Now I have moved into that 230 square foot apartment so that I could start a nonprofit to empower other people to do the same thing. And then the rest of your house is you're renting to a family. To a young family, yeah. And they have a son? Yes, yeah, they're adorable. What do you, are there, do, do the, does the family argue? No. <laughs> so you screen them? Never! Oh, you're being, are you being sarcastic? I, I, I'm not being sarcastic, okay. no. I mean, okay. they're a lovely family. We did have to go through a bit of sleep training. Well, <laughs> and I, I can tell you, um, well, I can hear my neighbors that are, you know, in on the, the next lot over. I'm not saying it's like, you know, a perfect, you know, sound situation. I, I mean, so I can hear my neighbors who also live in my house. Um, but it's just completely reasonable, if you will. It's, I would not call it a hardship at all. Well, I don't think it's a hardship. That's, but that was the point I was trying to, to ask was, can yeah. you, can you, you can hear these people that you're renting to your, you're renting out to obviously, right? I, I had one. I had one fellow who was living in this apartment, and when he used to make, you know, quote unquote, noise, we would open our windows because he would he would be playing his guitar. I was like, oh great, he's he's playing the guitar again. Let's listen. And I just I have a quote from my neighbor and the, my actual neighbor um, on the lot next door who I love. And um, I we were I don't know, throwing a party or doing something, and I apologized to her for you know being noisy. And she was like, oh, don't even worry, happy noise. I, I never mind happy noise. And I. I was like, I'm so down with that. I'm like, I love happy noise. Nice. So, yeah. Oh, that's such a great term. I've never really happy thought of noise. it. Yeah, that's such a great term. Do they argue? <laughs> it's better than saying, are, do they have sex? <laughs> oh, I don't know. That's called a happy noise. That's what that is. Um, I, I wouldn't say we have a sound problem to that extent. <laughs> so, really quickly, I'm going to say a name. Um, and, and this either is going to really work or it's not. Um, Natika Ravel. Oh, wow. I, I, I can't say that rings a bell for me. Who is that? Oh, okay. Well, we'll just edit that part out. Oh, she mentioned something about somebody she knew, a tiny house that she knew, but she just mentioned it as a lily pad. So I have a feeling. <laughs> Never mind. No, what that is, is that is actually, and here's the, here's the back story to this interview, actually. So here in Portland... Mm-hmm. Um, there is a tiny house that is called the lily pad. Yes, there is. You're and right. when I originally reached out to Rachel, Rachel, no offense, but I thought I was reaching out to the owner of the lily pad. Uh, here. Okay. Oh, hilarious. And, yeah. and so Rachel's and my, you know, um, subsequent correspondence, and then we met right. again in Portland, it wasn't until she walked in that I suddenly put realized, the, realized that these are two entirely different yeah. sort of lily pads, and... Yeah. It was really wonderful and serendipitous, but yeah, so the, the lily pad tiny home here in Portland, um, hopefully we'll get to interview her. That's a whole her, separate... Her house tour, the house actually um, the house actually voices the tour. It's very, very unique and wonderful. But anyway, so Rachel, that's the serendipitous um, sort of accidental story behind our meeting. <laughs> that's it. That's great. And how yeah, and, uh, and I've definitely <laughs> run into uh, her online. I didn't... I, I know her... her home more than I know her name obviously nice. but yeah it's it's great Lily Pad actually it's um I called it uh there's small green spaces um 
because I'm, you know, so into sustainability and water is another big issue for me. So I, I'm um, encouraging pond culture. <laughs> so, and I just think it's kind of funny because it's flexible housing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very, very much. Um, so uh, when are you coming back to Portland? Soon, I hope. I actually wrote a note to the mayor um, and said, I know you guys are in a housing crisis, and I have you know one solution that might help you. Haven't heard back yet, but hopefully I will soon. I'll talk to him. I'll tell him you sent him an email. Thank you. Thanks. When I'd you, appreciate when you, that. When you come up, let's have some tea or something. Right on. Love it. Yay. Well, thank you, listeners, for listening to yet another weekly episode of tinyhousepodcast.com. Feel free to go to our website, which is tinyhousepodcast.com, and check out the show notes of this show and other uh, uh, episodes that we've run of the blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God. Okay, so everybody have a great rest of your week. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, Bye. Uh, we'll sober up. Bye. Bye. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if we remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Maine. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sightcast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever. You tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon. <laughs>